Welcome to the Unplanned Pause. This is a podcast about two friends' journey into the land of infertility. I'm Anne-Marie. And I'm Natasha. And we're both navigating our personal path to pregnancy and talking our way through it at the same time. Natasha and I have been friends for 10 years and uh, we worked together in a PR agency in London. That's where we first met. Tash, one of my first uh, memories of you is uh, you telling me that you would never have a boyfriend. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that you met Tom that week or at least that month. That's um, so funny because one of my first memories of you, Annie, was uh, you sending me an, a link to an epilator, which I could buy online. <laughs> and you must have heard me saying that I had hairy legs because um and that is probably why I felt like I was never going to get a boyfriend so it may just be fate or you may have helped me secure my lifelong partner (laughs) so Annie can you tell me quickly about your infertility journey yeah so uh I'm Anne-Marie I am 34 and uh, I've been trying to have a baby for about 18 months and about eight months uh, we got a diagnosis of male factor infertility. What about you Tash? So yeah so we've been trying to have a baby for six years in total. Uh, We have male factor infertility but I also had a pretty bad case of fibroids um, with one being as large as a honeydew melon. So we had to sort that out and we're still on the path to uh, getting a baby. So Annie, it's been a long time that we've been friends. You and I found out about um, our infertility at at different times in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it's been such a great experience to have a friend with me during this journey. Um, But it's not always been that way. So... Can you remember when when we first started talking about it? I distinctly remember when you first told me um, that you were having trouble conceiving. It was when we both lived in Brixton. Um, so it meant that when I found out eight months ago, I mean, you already knew we were having trouble, but you were kind of one of the first people I could speak with because fertility can be just so lonely in some ways I kind of struggled because I wanted people to understand how sad I was but no one can understand unless they're going through it so we really formed a bond and had so many discussions oh I well I remember you know so many people used to say to me oh just adopt or you know lower your stress levels have more vitamin b and have all these magical cures and um, that just never worked for me. But I know that I made some bloopers when we first started talking about it together. Do you remember? No, Natasha, what's, what is the answer to this question? <laughs> <laughs> like, you remember I said to you, oh, don't count your chickens or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is <laughs> like right. yeah. super rude as well. Well, yeah, and I mean, you think it's a blooper, but I actually, in retrospect, think it was quite helpful, but... I remember when I was telling you, <laughs> I laugh now, at my, you know, plan for when I would have a baby because I got 
married in 2017 and I was going to have a baby got a fall pregnant at the end of 2018 and then have a baby in 2019 and it all worked together and you know well you said to me well maybe that's not going to happen and the same thing someone else said that to me as well another friend who actually struggled to have a child now has a child and I feel really I feel like that was quite bitchy um I would never say that to someone again (laughs) well you know Um, what it, it it the thing is if you tell someone that at the time they will never pay attention but it's in retrospect I see it was good advice your advice was get started if you want to have a baby and I guess you know and the thing I really struggled with was I have a very populous family so I was looking to them and thinking that extrapolating out that I would have mm-hmm. the same experience and I think that's what I really struggled with in the first year of infertility was the frustration of not being the same as other people and not finding that part easy. Anyway, I digress. Um, Essentially, coronavirus happened and we had a little bit of time and we decided that we could record some of our conversations in the hope that they may help uh, women who are who are going through the this journey too or their family or friends so hopefully this will be of some help to someone (laughs) and not just a therapy for us so I know the focus today is on coronavirus but it's very difficult I think to tell your story without giving a bit of background first six years of background so can you start at the beginning how did you get to six years of trying for a baby yeah Um, I can, I'll try and give the condensed version. I always suspected that we may have some troubles. My partner's brother had IVF for their twins and there's a big age gap between my partner and his brother. So I, I always, I had an inkling, but we were young and carefree. So at the age of 30, we tried essentially for a year and a half before going to the doctor and we were diagnosed with um, male factor infertility. Okay, and what what are your next were your next steps then? So we had a bit of a an issue in that we moved house, um, and all my partner was still following up with his sperm test, which took him a year in um, the place that we had previously lived. And oh when we God. tried to, yeah, it it was such a long time, and, and during that whole time they weren't checking me out did you have any feeling that there was there would be something wrong with you um <laughs> uh, no not really okay so what happened next so we went for the assessment so we well first waited six months and hackney um because we couldn't get our records from our last gp and then we had to wait eight months I think it was until a slot came up with Hackney so we're tracking it around three and a half years by now we went for our first slot and the doctor was like oh my goodness you can you see this huge dark mass and I had a rather large fibroid distorting the shape of my room and it was huge. It was 10 centimetres wow. and the size of a honeydew melon. 
And sorry, just to say, um, someone listening here wouldn't know just how small you are, Natasha. So <laughs> that is really <laughs> significant because you're quite a petite person. Yeah, I have to say I was like quite like, am I going to lose a lot of weight after <laughs> I have my fibroid out? I was like, I am definitely going to shrink a dress size. It did not happen. Very vain, I know. But, you know, you've got to take the silver lining. Mm. So we had, um, I had a C-section. I waited another eight months to have a C-section uh, to get my fibroid out. And then the six months recovery, we did a round of IVF in between and froze some of my, my eggs. And then we waited another three months, had our first round of IVF. It failed, very sadly. So how long did you have to wait in between the procedure um, before you could start IVF? So, um, so just to break it down, because there's two parts to IVF. Um, I was able to wait three months after my procedure and I was able to have my egg retrieval. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't able to have those eggs put back into my womb because it was still recovering. Mm-hmm. So I had my eggs frozen and I was really lucky to to have some eggs to freeze. Um, they had to reach day five to be frozen. And okay. then I waited another three months and I was able to start a frozen egg transfer, which takes about two months of drugs. And I, I really thought that the frozen egg transfer would be a walk in the park. Um, mm-hmm. But it was it was actually pretty tough and that's a whole nother podcast episode. Um, and I found it harder than IVF. I found it harder than the egg retrieval. Okay. In what way, Tash? So it, the, I felt like the procedure was a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like there were more drugs. Mm-hmm. My IVF had been a couple, you know, it had been like, 10 days of drugs and then another 10 days of drugs but it all went fairly quickly and mm-hmm. when you're doing a frozen egg transfer it's a lot longer it it seemed like it was um two months worth of drugs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and those drugs just got to me more and I think it, it's so different for different people um I see people in forums saying frozen egg transfers are walks in the park you know there's no needles um I just really liked the fast the fast and dirty egg retrieval I was like give me the needles yeah. put them in get it out um and <laughs> yeah but I think everybody reacts differently so yeah we had the the frozen egg retrieval and um the dreaded two-week wait which is really as bad as it sounds mm-hmm. and we had a we had a fail we had a negative um did you sense Which, that or did you, how did you feel? Do you know, I was, um, my first week of the two-week wait, I got a stinking cold and I really thought that was going to be a positive sign. Um, but it, it's so funny. People seem to go on this journey where the first week of your two-week wait, you were all kind of super happy. You've got this little egg on board. 
it feels very positive, like you're doing something, there's a chance that you could be pregnant. And then as you enter the second week, it's like the week of doom. <laughs> and you're like, I'm not feeling anything. I have no symptoms. I didn't get any sleep. The stress must be killing off the embryo. Um, and yeah, I just um, got a negative. So I don't know. I think you can feel like that and get a positive And I think you can feel super positive and get a negative so who knows there's there's no formula oh my god so then you were due to start another round in March yeah so I you know I was so annoyed with myself like we waited for five months in between the last frozen egg transfer and I have no idea why we waited so long we could have just gone private coronavirus hit I knew it was coming. I knew the call was coming, so I prepared this little script in my head, and I, f- I, you know, I kind of just felt very emotional at that point. It is the point where Italy had seen a lot of rise in spikes of cases, and the doctors and nurses were battling to save people, and I was really a lot more focused on asking the nurse about what she was going to do and where she was going to be re- redeployed, and kind of gushing and thanking her, and. <laughs> And then I guess it only really just hit me quite recently, actually, when the news headlines came out about um, the fact that social distancing might not be over for quite a while in the UK. Yeah. So, I mean, what did you say to her? Like, what? how did she explain it to you? And it sounds like you were, you know, being really tough at the time. You were being very strong. Yeah, I, I think definitely the rehearsals helped. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, they didn't really say much, to be honest. They just said because of the pandemic, they were stopping fertility treatments. They said that the government had put pregnant women in um, the high-risk category and that at this point they couldn't uh, risk getting people pregnant when they were high-risk. But also, I think that the resources just needed to be redeployed. So I, you can't really argue with that, to be honest. No, of course not. But you have put so many drugs in your body. Yeah, I definitely started a lot of the medication. That was a shame because I am not my best self on the medication. And who is? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes I do use it as a bit of a scapegoat, um, mm. I think. Some of that grumpiness might be quite natural, but um, <laughs> it was tough. I, I really felt like this would be, we would be on the path to having private clinics open within a couple of months by now. And so this is the end of April. Um, whereas I, I now don't know if that's going to happen. And that that is scary to me. Yeah, of course, we there was HFEA guidance published last Friday that was quite vague. So at this time, with us speaking, we don't really know, do we? No. So do you, uh, what does this mean for your rounds of IVF? Do you still have two more to go? And do you have the eggs in reserve? Yeah, so um, I think when it comes to NHS, and I was so... Well, I want to say I'm so lucky because I was offered three rounds of of IVF for uh, egg transfer for free I don't actually think I'm lucky in that sense because to be honest I would have just much rather gone private and and save the time mm. um, I can't help but feel I've been in such a long waiting 
you know, like we didn't spot the fibroids and then we just waited and waited and waited. Um, and I really wish we hadn't, but that's, mm. you can't go back and you can't change your decisions. And um, no one knew coronavirus was going to happen. I mean, if every single woman, and I think there's 56,000 couples, I'm sure every single one of them wishes that they had done something yeah. to make things happen faster. Oh, but it's annoying though, Annie, isn't it? Because I kept saying to you, go private, go private if you can, if you've got the money, because it's, mm. it's so much better. And then um, I didn't take my own advice, which is ridiculous, really. Um, mm. But that aside, uh, what happens now? I'm really lucky I have eggs in the freezer and they're mm-hmm. not too bad quality. They're not the best quality, but they're not too bad quality. And really, they're just there, and I can get those out, and I can whip them up whenever someone um, gives me the opportunity to whip one up. But it is mad. It's like I've taken six years, and I've only been able to get one put up there. So we will see. (laughs) And what else can possibly happen after global pandemic? There's got to be something, (laughs) right? (laughs) Hopefully not. Yeah, I'm really hoping. (laughs) <laughs> I am due like honestly the universe I've got I'm having some words I'm due some good luck <laughs> talking of luck you've not had the best luck yourself no so it's been a you know compared to yours shorter journey but it has been very fraught and quite filled with them um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster if I'm honest uh, I really sensed that there was something wrong because, you know, let's just say I was being very precise in my timing and nothing was happening. Uh, we I went to see the doctor last August and he was really quick to get things going. We were waiting for a sperm test or something. We bought one on the Internet. Word of advice to any listeners, never buy a sperm test on the internet. And it said they couldn't read anything. And I think actually amongst this whole journey, that might have been the lowest night we had. This was before anything happened. Alex and I were both just, I think we were a bit distraught. Anyway. Oh um, so what, hang on, when when you found out, so you had this initial reading, mm. what ran through your head? Well, to be honest, we both just said we should never have bought it from the internet. That's wrong. Neither one of us was willing to accept that it was correct. But I think at that point, I had never really thought there was actually a genuine problem. And it was confronting the fact that I may have to take some really big steps to make this happen. I think that's what was going through my mind. But what then happened was, um, I think the NHS is fantastic. Absolutely. But we had to wait four months to get his sperm test. So we went private to do that. And we straight away got the result of zero sperm. And again, I mean, Tash, I know you probably had the same experience, but I felt like there was no clear pathway for me. It was just mm-hmm. up to me to figure out what way, what to do next. And I'm a yeah. top class investigator. So found a urologist and we went to see him who did expensive and lengthy tests uh, with Alex. And they took about two months because some of them were, you know, I don't know, actually just detailed yeah. tests. And would you advise doing that? Obviously, like we don't want to give out any advice, but were you glad that you did that? You went to a private urologist? Initially, yes, I was happy that we did that. But actually, that urologist did not do all the tests that he should. So 
one thing I have to say I've learned in this time is you've got to be your own investigator. So I should have gone to him and said, are you doing the test for this, 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 you know, whereas instead I trusted him to do the, the relevant things. Anyway, when the time came and we got the results, he said, we have no known reason for that you don't have sperm. There's, we can't understand why. That's a bit frustrating when you've paid all that money, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's frustrating because of the money. On the other hand, we just wanted a diagnosis to understand because, you know, what I was really worried about was that maybe Alex like actually had a more serious condition. You know, obviously we want to have a baby, but I also am really con- was concerned about his health. So he suggested that we go for some quite expensive surgery and that would have a 50% success rate. And I was nervous about that. And we were both really, we were both upset. But in the meantime, while we were waiting for all of those results, I got a misdiagnosis of polycystic ovary syndrome. And we went to see a gynecologist because in some cases, um, PCOS can be a barrier to you having children. In many cases, it's, it's actually not. The gynecologist had a look and thought that although I do have the cysts on my ovaries, that I don't have the syndrome because there's other factors that you need to have to have the the actual syndrome itself. And usually a telltale sign of having PCOS will be that you would have irregular periods. In January, we went to see our IVF consultant. And although at the time she insisted that we see a urologist and I was very cross because I said, we have everything we need. We've gone private. We've done everything that you want she said no and the NHS we're not going to pay for you to have that really expensive procedure for Alex unless we know we need it and so you need to see a different urologist what was your thinking once you got pushed back to the NHS were you relieved that it wouldn't pay it cost anymore or did you just feel like it was back in the waiting queue you know I don't really know how I feel about it because if I had infinite money, I would probably go private. But I think it's really sensible if you can um, be patient and wait for treatment with NHS. I've really struggled with that myself and I have used some private specialists along the way. I think the NHS is amazing. If you can be patient, it's amazing. But it's it's I one thing I've really struggled with is that mm-hmm. there has never been a clear path for me. So um I think it will be really helpful to have some guidance and will people to take the time to explain this is what you'll expect at your next appointment. But actually the only way that things have happened for me is through follow up and badgering. Mm-hmm. You definitely have to manage your own case, whether that's private or NHS. You, I remember you telling me that you had a slightly different diagnosis once you got there. Yeah, so Alex went to see a urologist and he, looking at Alex's results and profile, um, thought that he had a very specific and quite rare um, condition, but we needed to do some tests to determine that. And that's where coronavirus comes in. So to get that diagnosis... We need to uh, confirm it via MRI and a blood test. Uh, The MRI took place on the 13th of March. And in the meantime, the blood test came back to say that Alex was a a cystic fibrosis gene carrier. And it meant that I then had to get that blood test because if both people in a couple are cystic fibrosis gene carriers, 
and you're having IVF, you take a slightly different path. So uh, I had to get that blood test done uh, just as the um, as we were about to go into lockdown. Putting CF into the mix is is a is a big one, right? Like, was were you worried about having a matching gene? Um, I wasn't that worried because I do think that this medicine is amazing. You just take a slightly different path, and it's a little bit more complicated. But you know, it's really definitely possible that you both identify that you are gene carriers and you take the necessary steps so yeah I thought I thought of course I'm going to be a gene carrier of course we're going to have this extra complication but actually as it turned out about two weeks ago I found out that I'm not and so that was a small victory Um, amazing yeah just meant you know things are a little bit easier and then uh, I actually haven't told you this yet, Tasha, but um, we got a call from our consultant yesterday to say that the MRI results had come in. So Alex does have obstructive azospermia, and it means that really, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to do a sperm extraction whenever things get started. It's really positive news, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, I have to say, it's really brightened me up and brightened him up, and it makes me think... I don't want to get too hopeful, but that maybe, yeah, for the first time. It feels like a step forward, doesn't it? It's really positive. Yeah, it's really positive. Yeah, and even to know what he has, I now know not to worry too much about his wider health. And yeah, I think he's really relieved himself too. Do you have any advice for people who've maybe just had a, a diagnosis of azuspermia or perhaps is even in just in the investigative phases for malfactor? Yeah, I mean, both you and I have had quite a different situation. For me, um, it's devastating to find out that you're not going to conceive naturally and that's something you have to really work through yourself. And... For advice for someone else, um, just make sure you're getting all the tests that you can and push for your own uh, diagnosis. And I think what you said about giving yourself some time to grieve is really important, but also yeah. knowing that, and I can say this hand to heart, having gone through six years of it, um, you will you will feel a really painful grieving period and how long that lasts, I don't know but you will come out the other side of that grief. And when you're in the middle of that, it really feels like you will, you will never. Annie, let's move on really quickly to um, positive moment of the week, which is a moment where we are reflecting on something maybe funny, maybe something that we're grateful about, um, something that we feel has uplifted us whilst we go through this moment of you know, anxiety and not feeling in control. So I'm going to hand over to you with um, your positive moment of the week. You always have some great ones. I have to be honest, I am not a fan of trashy telly. Neither is my husband. But on Sunday, I got a recommendation for a television show called Too Hot to Handle on Netflix. It's a little bit like Love Island, but the people are less intelligent, I would say that's fair to say. And it's obviously quite scripted and quite fake. It has lifted me up 
through the coronavirus. I will tell you, I watched it Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and today's Wednesday, I'm going to finish it tonight. And the voiceover is hilarious. And Alex, my husband, has really enjoyed it. We've been killing ourselves laughing every evening. So that has given me so much positivity. And it's so terrible, but I really recommend it. Can I ask a very important question? For those of us trying at home naturally, may have been trying at home naturally for a very long time, does too hot to handle give you some, you know, heat within the bedroom? What what I want to know is it's saucy enough to spice up that side of things during the coronavirus. It could do. It could do, Tash. I think so because one of the premises of the show is that you are not allowed to uh, have any what they call heavy petting uh, there's, a, there's a prize right so the prize is $100,000 and every time someone kisses or has sex money is deducted from the ultimate prize oh my god mine and Tom's prize would be absolutely huge <laughs> after, can I just say after years of infertility I definitely think that I could go on this show and win. <laughs> God, yours was so, um, you know, current affairs. Okay, so mine was, mine was going highbrow. I have this next door neighbour app, which I just love. I'm a bit addicted to. And I just, every day I go on it and people put out a request for it for getting food for vulnerable people and there is such an overwhelming response to every single request like that and I just feel so heartwarmed and I honestly I feel like I have to like be so on it to try and get my ability to help in there but it's so um wonderful to see how the community comes together. So that brings us to the end of our podcast today. Thanks for sticking with it. And we really hope that you enjoyed the first one. As part of the rest of our podcast series, we'll be talking about infertility and work. We'll have guest speakers featuring, and they'll be talking about infertility from the male point of view and how to deal with waiting along your journey. We've just set up our social media accounts. So please do follow us if you've really enjoyed it. We're at the unplanned pause with underscores in between on Instagram. And let us know if there's any topics you'd like us to cover. You'll also be able to email us at theunplannedpause at gmail.com.